All right, good afternoon, everyone. How was that barbecue, huh? How often do you get barbecue brisket for lunch <clears throat> with mac and cheese? Yeah, they outdid themselves. I'm mentioning it, mentioning it so that the people in the video and the audio will see or will hear, hey, we have barbecue brisket today. That's right, come early, because uh, whenever they make something healthy, there's always leftovers. But whenever it's barbecue brisket and mac and cheese, scraping the, the bottom of the tin here. <clears throat> so a quick reminder, we're still doing this uh, Disciple Dojo, this ministry that, that Roots allows partners with. We're still doing this uh, fundraiser all month. If you give a donation of any amount, $5 or more, you get your name entered to win this copy of the uh, Zonervan's Cultural Background Study Bible. Excellent, excellent study Bible, full color. It's got all kinds of stuff that you normally would not know about in the text. So I highly recommend it. So whoever, it'll be a random drawing, just name in the hat kind of thing. And, um, but the goal is to help raise money this month for this ministry as we continue on. And um, if you don't win, your gift is still tax deductible. Uh, so it's, it's a win-win. There will also be some other uh, consolation prizes that we'll do, but the drawing for that will be in October. So it's, it's all of September. So you can give anytime. Go to jmsmith.org, click on support the dojo. You can give right there, PayPal, uh, or you can give cash or a check. Send it to the address that's actually on that web page. Uh, I don't get that money. It goes to our finance director. I don't see who gives what, and that's intentional. So if you want to enter to win that or other stuff, and we'll do more periodic things like that. Um, I want to put resources in the hands of people, in particular people that give to the ministry. I want a small way of giving back to them and supporting discipleship. So speaking of discipleship and cultural backgrounds, today, Numbers 25. Now, of all of the uh, sharp turns in Scripture, this is the sharpest, I think. It's up there at least. Um, you don't go from the highest heights to the lowest lows in any greater degree than Numbers 25. In fact, the closest thing to it was actually Exodus 32. That's the incident of the golden calf. Moses was on top of Mount Sinai. He was talking to God face to face. He was getting the Torah. He was getting the commandments. He was getting the very charter by which his people would become free and a godly society and a covenant society protected, uh, cared for, nourished in the land of their own, all this stuff. While that's happening, the people at the bottom of the mountain were engaging in all sorts of immorality and idolatrous worship. And this chapter, Numbers 25, is the Golden Calf 2.0. This is... That's, here's the thing, it's the same generation. This is what we need to remember. The generation that left Egypt, they left, they saw God's goodness, they saw His plans, they saw His provision, they saw His miracles, they said three times, everything the Lord commands will do. They formally, legally, spiritually entered into covenant marriage with God. That's how God describes it as a marriage. They entered into this. Immediately they broke it. And they broke it. And they broke it again and again and again and again. And as we've seen these past two years, as we've gone through Exodus and Leviticus and now through Numbers, we've seen them breaking those vows to the point where finally 
God said, that's it. This generation is done. There's no hope for you. You're going to die in the desert. Your corpses will litter the sands. Your children will inherit the land. So Israel's destiny goes on. They just don't get to be a part of it. And that's a key concept. I've hammered it home over and over as we've gone through Torah because it's such a key concept for us as New Testament believers and ideas of salvation and you know, this perseverance of the saints and all of these concepts that people uh, wonder about. Predestination, election, all these things. It's very simple. Israel was predestined to be God's firstborn son among all the nations. Israel was predestined to be His covenant people. Israel was predestined to be the means by which God would bring forth the Messiah. Israel was predestined to enter into the promised land. They were predestined to be the means by which God would judge the Canaanites for their immorality. Israel was predestined to be all of these things and nothing can change that. So that's one truth. Individual Israelites and individual generations within Israel, however, cannot claim those promises. You see how that works? The individual cannot say, oh, well, all that's true of the people is automatically true of me regardless of my covenant obedience. It doesn't work that way. This is, this, to me, this is crucial for, even for New Testament theology. All of the promises of God's people will come true. The church, He predestined His people. Ephesians uses that language as our Calvinist friends frequently remind me. Uses the language of predestination. God has planned from all time before the foundations of the earth. His people, His seed, the seed of Abraham. Those who are in Christ. The church, if we want us to use that terminology. The congregation, to use the Old Testament terminology. It's all going to win. It's going to be glorified to the degree that God predestined it. You can't thwart that. Nothing can thwart that. So yes, that is the promise of you know, the, 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 the security that we have for God's people collectively. However, every believer has to make that choice, has to faithfully persevere to the end in order to be able to be part of those promised predestined glory. So when people look at and they try to wrestle with this idea of, of, of divine predestination and human responsibility, you, you, both are true. It's just one way to think of it is, is the paradigm we're given, which is in the Old Testament, think of Israel. That's the model that we're given for salvation. Remember, they were the ones who God saved before any Baptist ever made an altar call, any Pentecostal ever said, brother, are you saved? Before any of that, Israel was saved out of Egypt. That's, the, that's where the language comes from. New Testament is all appropriation of Old Testament language for Israel. Even terms like elect and predestined. Those are Old Testament terms for the collective people of Israel. So that's how we look at our salvation today then. The book of Hebrews specifically, and Paul specifically, says Numbers is here for us as a lesson for us. The author of Hebrews, Paul, when he's talking about in 1 Corinthians, telling the people, this story, the saga of Numbers, is there for you because 
despite the passing of the covenant into the new covenant, we are still in the position that the people of Israel were in numbers. We're out of Egypt, but we're not yet in Canaan. We're in covenant with God. We have been redeemed by God. Our salvation already happened in that sense. But it's not full, it's not complete until we're in Canaan. So the call for Christians in the meantime is the exact same call for the generation of Israelites. Persevere. Don't go give in to the lures of idolatry and immorality and covenant disobedience. Because your fate no matter how many altar calls you've ever gone through, your fate will be the same as theirs if you make a, to quote Paul, shipwreck of it. Or to quote the author of Hebrews, if you turn away from it. In other words, if you reject the covenant through word, deed, actions, lifestyle, then you have no assurance that you will enter into the blessings of the covenant as an individual. You collectively, y'all have assurance that God's people will make it. See the, see the balance? God's people are going to make it. The church will be saved. The believers will persevere. Question is, will you be among them or not? And that's how, to me, now there are theologians on both sides, Arminian and Calvinists, who would take issue with some of this. And Disciple Dojo, we're, we're ecumenical. I welcome all those discussions. Leave them on the uh, website, on Facebook, any of that. I love those discussions. However, for the purpose of this study, given what we're seeing in numbers with Israel who are said to be our lesson, that's what makes the most sense to me. Where you don't have to jettison this idea of God predetermining anything, or you don't have to jettison this idea of people having to remain faithful in order to be ultimately saved. You hold them both. In the same way. So the promise to the people is secure. The promise to the persons is dependent on their accepting, receiving, and walking in that covenant status. Now in Israel, it's not like you can trip up and lose your covenant status. Israel, they, as we've seen in Numbers, they haven't lost their salvation. They've thrown it away. Huge difference. When people frame the question, and you lose your salvation. Well, not like your car keys. The better question, can you forfeit your salvation? Can you throw back in God's face what He's given you? Can you turn away intentionally, willfully, and high-handedly from God? That's the question. I don't see anywhere in Scripture that says you can't. I've seen promises in Scripture that say nothing can separate you from the love of God Nothing external to you, but the one thing that's not mentioned is you. Is your walking in faith. Everything else, nothing can do it. No external force can ever separate us from the love of God. That's where we can stand secure. However, that is assuming that you are in that loving relationship with God and want to stay there. This is talking about something very different as we're going to see what Israel does. So, chapter 25, again, this is the golden calf 2.0. In fact, before, and we're going to have, we'll probably do two weeks on this chapter, even though it's a short chapter, but it's a monumental chapter. And so, this week is kind of setting the stage theologically, and then next week we'll look at some other aspects of it. But all the way back in Exodus, so Exodus, Exodus 32, those of you that were here back in 2014, 2015, whenever we were doing Exodus, 
you remember, after the golden calf incident, God said, I'm going to wipe them out. I'm going to blot out the people. I'm going to finish them. And Moses, what did he do? He made atonement. He interceded for the people. And so God said, okay, I'm going to relent. But I'll punish those who are guilty. And I'll forgive those who aren't directly guilty. And there was this kind of ominous ring as, as it, kind of, it went on and we saw the downward spiral. Well, Numbers 25 is kind of the punctuation mark on the end of this whole train. Uh, that's a mixed metaphor. The caboose on the end of this whole train. Punctuation mark on the end of this whole sentence. You get the picture. In Exodus 34, though, all the way back in 34, after the golden calf incident, when God is re-inaugurating the covenant. So he's saying, okay, you blew it with the golden calf incident. Let me give you a do-over. Let me give you a mulligan here. Let's do this one more time. Here's the covenant. And he says in verse 15 of chapter 34, sorry, he says, uh, backing up to verse 10 of chapter 34, this is what God tells Israel, this same generation 40 years earlier. Then the Lord said, I'm making a covenant with you. Before all your people, I will do wonders never before done in any nation in all the world. The people you live among will see how awesome is the work that I, Yahweh, will do for you. Obey what I command you today. I will drive out before you the Amorites, Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Be careful not to make a covenant with those who live in the land where you're going, or they will be a snare among you. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, cut down their Asherah poles. Do not worship any other God, for Yahweh, whose name is Zealous, is a zealous God. Some translations say jealous. This the same word in Hebrew, zeal and jealousy. That could not be any clearer. Where are we in numbers? God has driven out these peoples that have opposed Israel. He has been faithful in doing the wonders of feeding them in the wilderness, providing water from the rock, all of these things. He's done what He said He would do. He's brought them to the brink. They're at a place called Shatim, which is literally where they're going to stay until Joshua takes them into Jericho and into the Promised Land. So they're it. They're at the, we, Numbers 25, they've reached the final destination before they enter into the land. They will remain there for the rest of the Torah. In this section, God's kept all His promises. Remember what He said not to do. Don't worship their gods. Don't get into their idolatry. Why? Because that's why I'm driving them out to begin with. I want you to be different from them. Then he goes on to say, verse 15, Be careful not to make a covenant with those who live in the land. For when they prostitute themselves to their gods and sacrifice to them, they will invite you and you will eat their sacrifices. And when you choose some of their daughters as wives for your sons, and those daughters prostitute themselves to their gods, they will lead your sons to do the same. This is the warning He gave them 38 years before this, give or take. They, the, the, the connotation between worshiping the false gods, the word used, the Hebrew word zona, it's the word for prostitute, but it means to be Sexually immoral, to, if you want to be old school King James, to fornicate, to enter into sexual relationship with someone who is not your partner. Now, why does God use this language? Because that is the essence of idolatry. It is spiritually cheating on your spouse. In this case, your spouse is God and you're Israel. 
So he uses that image. It's not just a warning against what we would call promiscuity. Although, yes, God's against that. But it's more than that. He's using the notion, the concept of promiscuity, which was already taboo in the ancient world, and he's using that to illustrate what happens when you go after and worship other gods. So he links sexuality and idolatry. And in all of Scripture, those two are frequently found together. Because what is it? It is a turning. It is a misusing of the very thing created in God's image. Back in Genesis, God didn't make His temple and put an idol in it like the ancient world would do. He made His creation and put His idol in it, His image, man and woman, together in that marriage covenant relationship. So all of these concepts are swirling around, and this is why God uses this image. So now, knowing that, that's the background. That was 38 years before. Now we go back to Numbers, where we are in today, 25, and we look at what this same generation who got that warning, what they do when they've reached the... Ver- they, what happened the last three chapters we've been reading? Israel's been out of the picture. This pagan sorcerer prophet has come and tried to curse Israel, or king has tried to make him curse Israel, and each time he said, I can't curse them, they're blessed by God. And then the last chapter in 24, he gave the highest prophecy of the glory of Israel in all of the Torah. Nothing will come close to Balaam's fourth oracle. And he gives that immediately while he's on the mountaintop. And God is speaking to His prophet. In that case, it's Balaam. Back in Exodus, it was Moses. While on the mountaintop, the people unaware, down below, are doing something very different. You see the theme of Golden Calf 2.0. This is not accidental. This is what it says. While Israel was staying at Shittim, and I'm going to differ from the NIV a good bit in this chapter because I, I do the translation each week for the chapter to, from the Hebrew. And usually NIV, I mean, I teach from it. It's fine. But in this case, there are a number of things that they obscure. It's not like it's wrong, but they just obscure some things that I think are really helpful to know about the text to put this all in theological context. So it says, while Israel is staying at Shittim, the people, it doesn't, the, te- the NIV says men, but it's the word the people. It's, it's, it, it, it's meaning Israel, a collective. The people began to, and, and NIV goes the literal route, indulge in sexual immorality. But the Hebrew says that same language from Exodus 3 began to prostitute themselves with the Moabite women who invited or enticed them to the sacrifices to their gods. The people, see, not the men, the people. That's why I don't know why NIV... I mean, they just pushed in verse 1 for like a literalism, but, but it misses the, the corporate nature of all of this. The people ate and bowed down before these gods. So Israel, and NIV says, joined in worshiping, but that word, it's, it's a one-time occurrence. It's here, and then it's in when Psalm 106 recounts this passage. It's the word... The meaning is strap. It's used in agricultural or a related word to mean to yoke, to bind together. So it's an agricultural word. And older translations may say, even say yoked. The New Testament, I think, says yoked themselves. But that's the, Israel 
yoked themselves, joined together, harnessed up. You know when Paul says, do not be unequally yoked, most definitely this verse is in his mind. If it's not a specific or direct reference, it's an illusion. So think of it that way, not just join together like, hey, come, like if, you, if a friend invites you to go to their service at a whatever temple, they get, if they're not Christian, they go somewhere else or a mosque or something. This isn't talking about, hey, come to our service, we're going to do a prayer service, and then, okay, well, I'll come with you and hang out. You know, this is not talking about that. This is talking about converting, yoking yourself together, tying yourself up next to, joining. It's a marriage imagery. It's what you do when you marry someone. Later, Ruth is going to do it with Naomi, yoking herself to the people of Israel in the positive sense. I won't use the same word, but the concept is the same. This is Israel is not just dipping their toe in the pond of idolatry. They are putting on scuba gear and deep diving into it. That's what they're doing in this passage. So the people ate and bowed down before these gods. And so Israel yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor. Baal, this is the first time the word Baal is actually used in the Bible. The first time its deity is mentioned by name. Baal is a generic term that just means Lord. In fact, Baal is the Hebrew word for husband. Take, make of that what you will, ladies. Um, but Baal just means like Lord. The Canaanites had their local deities, so all of them had their version of Baal. All, so this is the Baal, the Baal is the Hebrew word, Baal, that's why there's two A's back to back, you say both letters, the Baal of Peor. This is the Baal that's worshipped in this area. Where's Peor? Peor is that mountaintop that Balaam and Balak were just on top of giving this prophecy over Israel. At the very spot where God was pronouncing Israel as as to, to, to be a star that rises out of Jacob that would rule all the nations as the very spot where God's giving Israel's cosmic destiny, the very same spot is where Israel, that generation, yokes itself to the foreign God by entering into this idolatrous, immoral, sexual worship of these gods. The pagan Canaanite gods in this land, the gods of Canaan, they were all fertility gods. Baal was seen as the god of the storm. The god who brings, lets the sun shine and brings the rain clouds and the lightning. Baal statues, if you look, have pictures of him throwing lightning. Zeus wasn't the first one to do that. The idea was that Baal is the god of the storm. Why are storms good? Because they bring rain. What does rain bring? Rain falls into the earth, penetrates the ground, what comes up? The seed gives birth. It's all a sexual metaphor for the ancient pagan Canaanite deities. So Baal was the storm god, Asherah was the mother earth goddess, the storm god sends his seed, the rain, to penetrate the womb of the mother earth goddess, and her womb is fruitful. See how that works? So how do you worship Baal? Do what he does on a local scale, right? You want to entice Baal? Give him something to entice him. Give him something, give him a reason for him to get in the mood. That's how it works. That's what idolatry in the time in the Canaanites was about. Now there are other gods. This is in Moab as well. Moab also had Chemosh, the god of the underworld. Chemosh was the god, if you want him to send blessing or to keep curses away, 
you gave stuff. You sacrificed stuff. The valuable the sacrifice, the more protection you got. You want to be ultimately, sacri- ultimately protected? You sacrifice the ultimate thing that means the most to you. That's where child sacrifice came. You would offer your children to the gods in hopes that it would secure national prosperity or family prosperity or individual prosperity. There's a scene, I mentioned it on Instagram today, there's, there's a show that's really popular, really vulgar, so don't, I don't recommend it, but I've seen the show and there are some incredibly biblical elements in it. One of them is there's a show's called Game of Thrones and there's, there's a general who's trying to secure his spot as the king of all the kings and he has this woman who serves this Lord of Light as she calls it and says the Lord of Light will give you this victory but you have to show him that you really are devoted to him fully. So she ends up, he ends up burning his daughter at the stake in order to secure a victory. That could be pulled straight out of the Torah. That could be pulled straight out of Canaan. In fact, the author may have gotten the idea from reading some of the Old Testament accounts in Canaan. But they would do that. People would offer their sons and daughters or they would engage in sexual morality. And on the show, this Lord of Light priestess, she does both. And they don't flinch from showing any of it, which is why I don't recommend it. But the point is, it is very much reflective of what was going on at this time. When Israel is camped out in Shittim, they're on the verge of the promised land. Balaam has just failed to curse them three times and instead has pronounced the greatest blessing that could ever be spoken over a people. At the very same time, that generation, those people, enter into, yoke themselves together, throw away the covenant. You see this? They didn't trip up. They didn't... I flipped somebody off in traffic. Am I still saved? Right? I, 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 I cursed at my coworker because I was angry. Am I still a Christian? I got drunk again last night. Does God still love me? That's not what's going on here. This is, Yahweh's done all this for us, but this looks really good. And she looks really good. And this whole concept of this is how you worship looks way better than our sacrificial Levitical purity because that's hard, and that requires us paying attention to our daily life. This just requires orgies and, you know, the occasional... Sign me up! That's the choice Israel's making. They're, they're turning away. They're not accidentally falling away. They're high-handedly saying, God, we're good. We like these better. And they're going after this people's gods. In this case, the Baal of Peor. So then verse 5, we'll finish up. Or verse 4. Response? What was it at the golden calf? Anger. I'm going to wipe them all out. Same response. The Lord said to Moses, take all the leaders of the people, the chiefs, the rosh, the heads of the, the ones who are in charge. Take all the leaders of the people. NIV says, kill them and expose them in broad daylight before the Lord. Literally, it says, impale them for Yahweh before the sun. In other words, execute them, do it publicly, and don't bury them. Because they're under a curse. They're cursed. They are are damned. This generation has had the death sentence over its head the whole time. God's already said, you're going to die in the desert. The ones who haven't died of old age, this is God saying, 
these are the leaders. These are not the new generation. This is the old generation. And so God's saying, that's it. They're done. And you're going to carry out a capital punishment because they've broken the first, second, uh, how many commandments have they broken in what they've done? They've shattered the covenant. They've spit on, they've wiped with the covenant. They've done whatever image you wanted to uh, use to describe the utter repudiation of something. That's what they've done. And so God's looking at them and he's looking at the generation that's going to follow after them and he says, this is not just going to be a little private sweep this under the rug. Kill them. Execute them is the word. Not kill out of vengeance. Divine punishment. The punishment that they agreed upon when they said all that the Lord said we will do. When they had that covenant meal. When the animal was sacrificed. When the blood path was there and the people walked through both sides of it. All of that imagery that we know of from the past four years of this Bible study, the purpose of that imagery was to say, if I break my end of the covenant, may what happens to this animal happen to me. Well, they've broken their end of the covenant and now God says, what happens to the animal, that's going to happen to you. And so he uses this term specifically. It's translated impale. It's translated, some translate it hang. Some translate it um, break the bone. It's a, it's a, again, it's one of these rare one or two time use words that we don't know exactly what it means, but it has something to do with a public execution. And so God's going to make an example of these people. Moses then is going to respond, but before he can, something else even worse is going to happen to drive this home, but we're out of time. So next week, we're going to pick it up. And next week, it is intense. So do not miss it. Have a great week, everybody.